0: Welcome to the Northern Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the Company at Horns of Odin. And today, today, I'm joined by Julian Post-Melby. Julian, thank you for for joining me. I'm really excited about this episode. We're going to be looking at glacial archaeology, which is fascinating to me. Um, So yeah, if you can just tell everybody kind of maybe who you are, what you do.
1: Certainly. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, my name is Julian Postmelby, and I'm an archaeologist at the Museum of Cultural Heritage at the University of Oslo in Norway. Uh, I work uh, on the glacial archaeology program uh, and for many people, they know us through Secrets of the Ice, which is our public outreach mm-hmm. part of the program. So uh, what we do is we survey and uh do a lot of field work and collecting of artifacts around melting snow in uh, the uh, glaciers and ice patches in uh, South Central Norway. So this is the inland county area where uh, most of the high mountains in Norway are situated. Uh, Norway is, of course, a very northern country. So as soon as you come above a thousand meters, the tree line is gone and you're getting into areas with no vegetation and Above fifteen hundred meters you get areas of permanent ice and snow and there's permafrost so we're in that kind of environment
0: okay this might be a super ignorant question to start off with, but is the is the ice and snow melting is it just a a yearly thing and then you go in at the right time when it's melting or is it due to outside factors like climate change
1: yeah so uh if you can, the field of like what would you call glacial archaeology is something that's been emerging in the last couple of decades, and that's mainly because uh, sites and places which have had stable, cold uh, environments for the last, in Norway, for example, close to eight thousand years, and in the Alps, the same. And um, but now the uh, the ice is retreating at an very fast, and uh, this is exposing a lot of sites that have been uh, encased in ice for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what we do is uh, we have to get in kind of at the end of the summer because uh, there's always there's snow every year in Norway, of course. And um, so it will start snowing in September, and that snow will melt through next year's summer. So, at the end of August, perhaps, then you're down uh, to the previous year's uh, melt, and that's when it starts to uh, eat away at the ice that's been there for thousands of years. So, mm-hmm. we have like a short window of opportunity every year where we try to get into sites where old ice is melting. So, these sites are sadly melting out due to climate change, and this is a worldwide phenomenon. Okay. Phenomenon. So as Norway, for example, the Alps, you have the Yukon in Canada, the Rocky Mountains in the U.S., uh, or the Altai Mountains in Mongolia. So this is something that's happening all over the world. And um, in uh, the Inland County area of Norway, we're talking about more than half of the global finds of this type are. So this is the main hotspot in the world. And that's because there's been a lot of human activity on these sites throughout mm-hmm. thousands of years in Norway's uh, prehistory. That's
0: fascinating. That that has to be quite bittersweet because I guess the more ice melts, the more exciting it is for you and the more you can find, but also equally we don't really want it to melt.
1: No, and that's uh, something we're very aware of. And uh, you know, it's it's a fun project to work on because, as we'll talk about, these are very exceptional finds. This is stuff you can't find in other archaeological contexts in Europe, for example. So we see things we've never seen before as uh, archaeologists, and that's super exciting. You know, you, you can't contain that excitement. But at yeah. the same time, we see prehistory melting away. We see it disappear with the meltwater faster than we as uh, archaeologists can collect the artifacts and the data. Um, I've, I've seen, I've found uh, Stone Age arrow shafts floating in meltwater. You know, if we'd been there wow. 10 minutes later, it would have been gone forever. And it had been there for over 4,000 years. So you, you get that sense of urgency Mm-hmm. and uh, a bit of kind of like a, you can feel the sorrow for the disappearing. These are These are like landscapes that will be gone in 100 years. We can't. You won't be able to experience them today. Yeah. Or in, in 50, 100 years, you won't be able to see the same landscape that they saw a 1,000 years ago in mm-hmm. the Viking Age or in the Stone Age. It will be completely different. It will be a landscape without snow and ice. Mm-hmm.
0: When you say gone forever, why Why would that, if it's in, in the melted water, is it because it's so old it will just disintegrate? Well, or then deteriorate?
1: A, well first of all, in the melted water, it will just float away into a river or into a stream, into a river, into a lake, into, a lake, into the sea and be gone. Right? Okay. Um, and of course, uh, when they're exposed, they will uh, start deteriorating. And that depends on the material. For example, wood, it can handle a bit of weather, you know, because these have been frozen, so they're they're like new. So if okay. you have a stick, you know, it can take it. Yeah, you know, It can lie outside for a couple of weeks without being gone. But if you have leather or wool textiles, they'll just uh, dry up and, and get taken by the wind or crumble to dust under mm-hmm. this, uh, the wind and sun. So it varies from uh, material type to material type. But yeah,
0: so uh, that is it's extremely fascinating because the amount of stuff that you do find, but then the amount of bits that you must miss.
1: Yeah. So we we have uh, around sixty sites, uh, different sites around the mountain areas that we know have finds, and um, of course. And when shit hits the fan, it's always everywhere all at once, you know. So, oh, you yeah, know, there's yeah. stuff everywhere. And you can't you can't be everywhere because the sites are four, five, six hours away from the closest road. And, you know, so it's just a half a day's work just trying to get there from a road, for example. So, we know this, that, like, we have to prioritize. You know, we go to the sites where we think that it's uh, going to be... I will get most return for our effort. So mm-hmm. places we know have interesting stuff or places we know we have like skipped over a few years and there should be a lot there now.
0: So you mean, you mean you don't have a helicopter like in all movies with archaeologists?
1: Well, uh, we used to use a little bit of helicopters, but the helicopter very weather dependent and this is the high mm-hmm. mountains. You know, it's windy, it's foggy, it's snowing, raining. You can't, you can go days without being able to get in with a helicopter. And uh, we're also uh, acutely aware of why the ice patches are melting. Okay. And yeah. so it's it's also a bit of that. But we, if we're doing a big base cap, we use pack horses. And um, uh, pack horses are uh, fabulous. They can carry – a horse can carry up towards 100 kilos of equipment. Wow. And they, and a horse can walk faster through the mountains uh, with a hundred kilos than I can walk, you know? So it gives you that uh, also something about that. You can just move through the landscape as they used to do. And we find lots of uh, horse equipment or or dead pack horses from middle age, medieval period, Viking age, iron age. So -hmm. we know that they used them too. So something about you get the same feeling of being on the same trip that the that they, uh, the people we are recovering artifacts Mm -hmm. from used.
0: That has to be, it has to be so different to, I don't want to be offensive to traditional archaeology, but it has to be so different in a sense that, you know, it's not turning up to a site. I mean, all sites are different, but you could just turn up to a site that's, 15 minutes off a road and it's still an amazing thing. You can find something that's going to change history forever. It's still exciting, yeah. but I'm, but for you to get there, it has to be an, an adventure in itself before you're even at the site and then looking for these, these amazing yeah. items.
1: And yeah, it certainly is. I also do normal excavations uh, as part of my, part of my job. And, you know, it's okay. You know, drive up to the site, get out of the car with a coffee yeah. in your hand and you know just enjoy normal archaeology digging something yeah but this is you know um for anybody who's seen pictures of our work you know it, it looks like a mountain expedition it feels like a mountain expedition you're if you get wet you know you're going to be wet for days because mm-hmm. you know it won't dry or mm-hmm. um at least if your shoes get wet because you know oh. don't bring in expert shoes oh but so there's something about that but that's I don't know for most of us that um that have done it for several years i guess that's part of the uh the allure you know we <laughs> after like four weeks you're like oh i'm never going to do this again that this is the last year that's enough and then two days later it's like ah, should we go back soon you know yeah. you get this kind of addiction to like the uh to the experience as yeah, many probably explorers throughout history have felt you know it wasn't It was hard work and it didn't
0: always feel good, but in hindsight, you wanted to do it more. Mm -hmm. I think that's that rings true for most experiences that are really worthwhile doing. That Sometimes in the moment you hate it and you're like, I'll never do this again. I mean, I wonder how many mothers during childbirth have said, fuck this, I'm never having another kid. And then once, you know, after it's settled down, yeah. like, oh that wasn't too bad. I'll <laughs> let's have another one. <laughs> so it, it it's that similar sort of thing, you know, you forget the, the struggles after and you just yeah. enjoy the, the really nice memories for it. Yeah. So exactly. how long do you oh, sorry, I was gonna say um, how long do you how long do you stay up there for
1: well it varies from the site to site and this uh, year to year, we know because we have many sites, so we kind of have to spread the time, but usually our our main field work time frame for field work here is like August, beginning of September. So that will be like six weeks ish okay. that we like, that's what we have set off the time to do the field work on it. And, um, and then, you know, some sites will spend a week at some places, two or three days, some places will just go in and out as, as a, as a, it's a strike force, you know, just mm-hmm. five guys in, check it out for a day and then out again, you know, we, okay. you spend 14, 14 hours walking around the mountains, but uh, you you get a picture of how, what's going on. So um, so usually we do two larger surveys a season. So like two separate sites where you maybe spend a, a, a week-ish and then uh, the rest of the time is like uh, day trips or Two or three nights in a tent, checking uh, different areas.
0: What what a fun job! (laughs) What a fascinating life that is. Is is it just is it just one team that does the different sites, or or do you have multiple teams that go to different sites at the same time? We split up sometimes. It depends. You know, it's been things have
1: changed from year to year and the program's been going for over 10 years so we've we've tried a lot of different stuff so we we could just have to decide from year to year what what seems uh, beneficial at the moment Mm -hmm. or in the moment so I um, maybe I haven't quite set the scene for everybody listening maybe of why there's so many artifacts in the high mountains
0: oh yeah I I, I could keep talking about how cool it is all day so
1: (laughs) (laughs) please please do that yeah this isn't an outdoor podcast, is it? Pardon? No, no. I said this isn't like an outdoor experience podcast. Like we're not a hiking podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> so we should do some. No, we- but the uh, we've been talking about all these finds, but there's there's a reason they're there, of course, and that is um, mainly reindeer hunting. So uh, in uh, in Norway, there you, there is wild reindeer, and of course, there was a lot of wild reindeer throughout prehistory. And in the summer, the reindeers need somewhere to escape from the heat, and especially insects that are um, very nasty. We have there's a type of uh, a fly here that will that will land on the reindeer and bore under their skin and lay eggs. The eggs of the fly will be underneath the reindeer's skin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, seems uh, excruciatingly. Uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Uh, what a what a evil thing to do. Jeez. Anyway,
1: these uh, flies they cannot fly over snow. Okay, uh, right. The air is too cold, so they they will just fall to the to the ground. Wow. And the, this this is something that the reindeer obviously know, so they will they will graze down in the valleys. At uh, from like late evening and night, early morning in the summer, and then they'll buy, and then they'll pull up to the mountainsides throughout the day in the summer to stand on the snow and ice to avoid these insects and to escape the heat. And this is a very predictable uh, behavior, and we know hunters have been exploiting this since the Stone Age and uh, and forwards. So that's they could just. They knew where the reindeer would be in the middle of the day. They didn't have to like walk around and try to stalk them and, and, and follow the herd. They knew where the herd would be in the middle of the day. So it's, it's like setting an ambush. Wow. So that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of finds. And the other is that some of these sites were mountain passes that we used in, in, um, in prehistory from, uh, yeah. Some of them, the most well documented one we have at Lenven, it's gets. They start using it in the Roman period, mm-hmm. and uh, it has its uh, sees the most amount of traffic through the Viking age, and then it's in use in through the, the medieval period, and then, but it stopped being used before the historic uh, the written sources, so it disappeared some time after the the plague.
0: Mm-hmm. Do we know what? The landscape would have been like obviously we're mainly a viking age podcast so yeah. what would it have been like a thousand years ago and obviously you're i you know you're looking for anything up there i presume from yeah. any time period so do we know how much it would have changed throughout history as well
1: well these these sites will of course uh uh, fluctuate in size, the like the at least the snow around them, because these sites they consist of like a a core of ice and then the snow that will vary from season to season. So, um, uh, maybe the Viking Age would have seen them as we saw them twenty years ago. So, okay. like like not like massively different, yeah, but but different still. But you know so. So we know, but they chose to use these mountain passes because there was snow and ice there. Because uh, this is a very high friction landscape. There's just rock, you know, there's no soil or anything. So you're just walking a scree, huge boulders. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just takes a lot of time to plod through these boulder fields. But mm-hmm. if you have a nice compact snow, it's like walking on a highway. And that's why we've sometimes called mm-hmm. it like the Viking highway in the mountains, because you just get it. It's the same as us doing the field work you just get onto that hard packed summer snow that's melted down and frozen a bit and then you can just walk if like it's pavement.
0: Wow. So, so would that be similar I'm putting it to my experiences when you when you go walking through woodland and obviously there is one path that everybody's taken and and you just have a clear path through of kind of just soil rather than trees and brambles and bushes and yeah. everything
1: else. So that would that would be like the the easiest route to use crossing. uh, Like, so if you're crossing like a mountain pass and there's somewhere where there's a snow field, like, or a snow, a gully with snow, fastest is always kind of just to walk on that and follow it. Okay. Uh, So so this, um, so this is like the the easiest route to take.
0: The least cost. Okay. That leads me on to what kind of footwear I don't know whether, I assume that's something you would probably know. Because, yeah. you know, I'm always thinking of those little ones that are like tennis shoes. That's mm. my image of what they would have on the feet. Yeah, so we have found several shoes in
1: these mountain passes. And for example, two Viking Age shoes. I uh, I almost stepped on one once by accident. You know, that's
2: <laughs> okay.
1: that's how we, you know, because everything is just melted out onto the ground from the ice. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's no soil on it like a normal excavation, so mm-hmm. but anyway, so it is a it's a hide like if you like imagine like a leather shoe or or a hide shoe. It is pretty much what it is. But these um shoes that we find on these sites, the interesting part is uh, so they're they're untanned hides and um they have uh, sewn them so that the uh, the um, the fur of the reindeer that they were made of is uh, out, so the fur is on the outside of the shoe.
0: Oh wow! I I was one hundred percent sure you were going to say on the inside.
1: Then No uh, it's on the outside because that means it's just like for anybody familiar with uh, alpine skiing, for example, where you have uh, skins under your under your um, skis. So that okay. you don't, you can, you you won't slide backwards. It's like, uh, it's like wearing crampons, okay, or 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 studs under your mm-hmm. under your shoes. So they 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 knew this that they were probably going to cross the ice and uh, or snow, and then they wanted footwear with the traction on them. Wow. So they have specific, or not if they were specifically made for this, but they have the shoes. So what we find on these sites definitely are optimized
0: mm-hmm. for this environment. I imagine Uh, it's a trial and error thing and over time they've just figured out this is the the best way to do it.
1: Yeah. And of course we also find um, snowshoes for horses. Uh, Like so big like 50s centimeters in diameters round. Um, They're made of like like it's like a birch frame kind of thing so that the with the um, wifey bindings in the middle, so that the horses would get more, what would you say? <laughs> they won't step through the snow, you know? Yeah, so they have more feet. surface area. Yeah, So they mm-hmm. have more surface area. So we found the oldest ones of these are from the Roman period, like 200 AD, or at least the third century sometime. So we like, we know that they also had a, a squ- equipment for crossing the snow for their pack animals. Mm-hmm. And we also f- have found skis uh of course as well as so they they had the the equipment for crossing these kinds of uh places
0: yeah so they they're, they're clearly well equipped for being up there it's not a one off occurrence it's something that they have learned over time to to acclimatize to being up there and adapt it, and
1: yeah we've seen you know some of these so for like the hunting sites we can see they've been in continual use for around 6000 years and the mountain pass at Lenbrand that we've just been talking about is was used uh, for like eleven, like one thousand one hundred years. As okay. like we as we can see, it's like that's consecutive use. You know, it's been. Wow. If it wasn't every year, it was at least almost every year, and there are thousands of artifacts just melting out of that one site with the beyond, <laughs> beyond most archaeologists'
0: wildest dreams. So, if if they echoes I guess looking at it from a, a modern mind, I can't imagine humans hunting a, a single place for a thousand years and not over hunting it to the point where it becomes worthless anymore. So I guess that means that they must have had a an a, some eye maybe on conservation of the idea of the if we hunt this too much, then they're not going to be here anymore. Or is it just a case that they didn't need that many?
1: Well, it's, yeah. It, 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 Because I can, yeah, it's 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 probably like a case between how much you can feasibly get with the available technology, for example, of bow and arrow, Mm -hmm. versus how much you actually need, and how much because or how much time you have to spend at it, and what the market is, for example, for this this um, for a a given product. But what we can say and what we know about reindeer hunting in or the like, the 13th century. So that's like the medieval period in Norway. Mm-hmm. So we see like from the late Viking age an uptick in the intensity in reindeer hunting, and uh, through the genetic makeup of of the like retrieved althers and bones, we can see that there's a genetic bottleneck in the 13th century, and that tells us they they have decimated the reindeer population to a degree where it's becoming genetically unviable as a population. So oh, okay. they they almost they almost eradicate the wild reindeer through commercial hunting in the early uh, medieval
0: period. Do we know Norway. why that is did did ha- reindeer hide become super popular? The uh, the commodity is antler and okay. uh, that is
1: for making combs. Uh, so we know this was exported through like all around the North Sea from um, from, for example Norway and that's because people started living in urban areas and you know for example in like Iribe or the, the early urban centers in England mm-hmm. uh, or York for example you know and there would be lice yeah, so much lice and then you want the fine combs okay. and that uh, and the uh, and, um, you know, this is in a time before plastic. Yeah. But, uh, anther, uh, you know, it, you have the, it, it ends up being a type of plastic you can just carve, saw it up and carve it up and then make very nice combs. And, yeah.
0: uh, Ooh, that mention of life just gave me a little shiver, <laughs> looking yeah. at me and you with, with beards and, <laughs> yeah, it just Oh. Yeah, so
1: so that's you see, so that's what happens, kind of I guess, in the um, late Viking age, mm-hmm. uh, like if and then for the early medieval period in Norway is mm-hmm. is that you get the markets, you get you have a market for it, and you have the means to do it through yeah. uh, mass hunting trapping systems. Okay. So that so that's so we kind of uh, so this is of course archaeology around the whole uh, glacial archaeology thing, like we excavate. Other sites that gives us a lot of this information about the hunting, mm-hmm. but the nice thing about these um, these ice sites is that we have preserved antler and bone as well. You know, so we get a lot more genetic data points on uh, on reindeer mm-hmm. from uh, from the
0: period. Do you get any finished products, or are you just finding the raw antlers? Because I guess why would they? take a- it? at these sites.
1: This is like the raw. Yeah. Of course, we can find some objects made of, uh, of antler and bone, of course, you know, as they would have lots of this in their <laughs> possession anyway. But also, um, reindeer, they shed their antlers annual anyway. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a lot of it floating around in the mountains. Yeah, But on these sites, they will just be preserved by the same means that... Mm-hmm. The uh, artifacts are, you know, so we we find a lot of naturally shed antler, but this they give some, give the same genetic information and and uh, natural history information uh, mm-hmm. as what the stuff that's
0: butchered by humans, yeah. For that, example, that, that's why I was a little bit surprised you said that it was due to antler because I was thinking they do shed them naturally, so surely it would make more sense to keep them alive and let them keep shedding rather than well well this is also you're you're getting close to to the
1: period where you get um uh domesticated reindeer yeah that happens is some place in in the same time frame in, in further north in norway so you you're, you're you're touching into like same the same um or the concepts around, around that. But of course, you yeah. know, it's not, they just didn't kill, take the antlers and then dump the rest. No. You know, they kept the skins were used for something. The bones were used for something, the meat, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sinews. And and we find, you know, they use the sinews for, for example, when they were making arrows, you know, they had to wrap the, um, the haftings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the arrow point, you know, it's, it's glued in there, but they wrap it with the sinew as well. For example, so so it's a, it's a total package, but uh, when we're talking about the external markets, it would be um okay. the althurs and probably furs as well. But althurs yeah. are very easy to trace because they preserve well mm-hmm. in the archaeological record, for example, okay, yeah. in urban uh, places. Okay. So that's uh, easy okay. to talk about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we were speaking before the podcast a little bit and you mentioned about how glacial archaeology gives you better um, access to, I guess, organic finds, something that you don't usually get with traditional archaeology. Yeah, so that's the...
1: I guess that's like the main attraction of all these finds and why, I guess, lots of people like enjoy... Following our work on social media, and that is, since these artifacts are lost on ice and snow, or they they get encapsulated in ice, that means that there's uh, there's no breakdown of the organic material. Wood is preserved, clothing is preserved, anything that's made of an organic material is preserved, and this is you know rare for other archaeological sites such as a burial mound you, in lucky circumstances, you might get something, but mostly if you excavate a Viking grave in, in for example, Norway, you will find metals, stone and pottery, you know, and that's, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. will, that's what we, um, you know, our archeology is like the history of pottery, really, you know, it's, yeah. there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so for example, uh, otherwise, you know, if you find an arrow, or if you're talking about an arrow in an archaeological sense, you often just really mean the arrowhead. Mm-hmm. But in our instances, when we're talking about an arrow, we're talking about an arrowhead made of metal or stone. But then there's a 60, 70 centimeters of arrow shaft made of wood. And then on that shaft, you also have arrow feathers for the fletching. Wow. Uh, and then... They have been glued in place with birch tar, and then they've been. And you can you can find yeah the, the tar is uh, still there, and then and then the uh, the the, um, the feathers have been tied into the tar with linen string, and the uh, and on the uh, by the and uh, the uh, arrow point has been uh, wo- has tightened in with the sinew. You know, so you suddenly have. Uh, it's, it's, it's an object that has uh, five or six components and normally you just find one of them and then suddenly you have all of it. Yeah. And then you multiply this by hundreds of um, hundreds of objects, thousands of objects, and you suddenly get an insight into things you couldn't do research on or tell people about. For example, about that the, they had the fur li- turned out on the shoes. hmm or that they had uh, snowshoes for their horses yeah or or that we find um uh everyday um everyday objects that we've never seen before from certain time periods that we can suddenly you know discuss uh the background for uh for example uh, we find dairy equipment on some of the sites mhm uh f- and why were they there? Because they, they obviously must have been going somewhere where they were going to do something with dairy products. Mm-hmm. And then you find pieces of clothing or complete clothing, like we found a Roman age tunic, which is like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, you know it's kind of unheard of It's hard to like yeah. maybe put into words how strange that is to find a complete yeah, wh- tunic that is 1,700 years old, just lying there
0: intact. Oh, that, yeah, that has to be insane because, you know, one of the hardest things to find preserved is fabric and clothing. Yeah. You, you see, you, anybody who goes, you know, frequents museums, you always tend to see anything when it comes to fabric, you find yeah. like something that's maybe like a couple of inches square, if that, yeah. and like that's all they have. To find a complete piece must be, you know, like it's, it's unheard of.
1: Yeah, you know, this is a piece of clothing that it would um in theory, uh, I could have put it on. most likely it would, you know, it might have even it would have survived the me draping it over myself.
0: Okay, really? So it was it was in and in, in that. I wouldn't take a jog around in it, but you know, it, it,
1: you know, it, it's not fault. you can you could like, It's not gonna
0: just fall apart if you no, touch it. it. It's not like
1: uh it doesn't just fall apart if you touch it or we found like a a mitten from the viking age (laughs) you know it's just it's just lying there over a rock like somebody was holding onto
0: the rock you know and and i don't think i've stopped smiling this whole episode yet i find this (laughs) this is so fascinating (laughs) And these
1: are you know like there have been a few mittens found you know there's Mm -hmm. like a site in iceland where there's a couple of mittens from the viking age and And stuff like that but you're into like the the one off type of discoveries you know you can like say oh yeah we found one of those ones somewhere in Europe kind of mm-hmm. category of, of finds yeah like we've we've recovered a, a complete ski pair from
0: uh, from the eighth century like that's not something that usually happens no, no. you know and I guess when you it's one thing finding a fragment of something and then speculating on the complete piece and the size of the person, for example. Whereas if you find the complete piece, you can say, "Well, this person was like with much more accuracy. Like there was likely this tall, this this size." It gives you a much better.
1: Of course, it does, and um, and it, it, that's of course a, a fun. Thing, you know, you can like, you see the size of the shoes, you know, and then you'll easily say what size the feet must have been to like wear them. And this is stuff that, you know, of course has happened, um, has been possible in like medieval urban centers where you have deep cultural layers where you have like several meters of organic waste that's uh, preserving itself sort of. But for example, our oldest shoe is from the middle of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, three and a half, ooh, yeah, three and a, yeah, close to three and a half thousand years old. You know, so it's like two and a half thousand years older than the stuff from the medieval towns, mm-hmm. and it's like okay, but he wore the person, whoever that they were, they had like uh, something close to size thirty-nine. You know, in a European size
0: shoe. Okay, so, I right. right. like the details. I don't know what that is in British sizes. We use uh So I'm sure somebody in the chat will let me know. <laughs> yes.
1: Cause... Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe in the US, like it's seven and a half, maybe for men's something like. Yeah, we use see a it. similar similar yeah. size. So, but so uh, do you... you know that would like say at thirty-nine. That would be like a small man's feet mm-hmm.
0: or a big woman's feet today. You know yeah. that that crossover section. Do you see a big difference in size from? three and a half thousand years ago to a thousand years ago. And I guess you uh, can't really, really say who's wearing it either. No, uh, we don't have,
1: you know, we, are not, we don't have that kind of statistics to uh, <laughs> to lean on. If you want to, you know, we have a couple of shoes, you know, it wouldn't yeah. be enough to say.
0: It, it's not a big data pool. But Jimmy no, says uh, that they're his size. So yeah. maybe he can borrow them to go out, go out on the town end.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, of course, that's a lot of fun. And, um, but you know, a lot of the prehistory can feel a bit impersonal when you're out or if you're excavating uh, artifacts or, or sites, or if you're in a museum, you know, you don't always, it's just stuff lying there. Mm -hmm. But I think I, I feel that with these uh, well-preserved organic finds is easier to kind of feel that you're closer or there's something
0: about the connection yeah. feels and
1: everything feels more normal. It feels like my stuff. Well, yeah, uh, when you,
0: you know, when you find like, again, you know, when you're finding fragments of things, you have to use a degree of imagination to complete it and then picture who, who are, but when you find a glove holding a rock, and you could probably almost go and put your own hand in it, yeah. that has to just bring the all to life so much more.
1: Yeah, uh, it certainly does. And, you know, the tunic I was talking about, somebody, they they spilled glue on it, like birch bark tar on their shirt. You know, you can't oh. get it out again because it's like tar. So it just, like you just you can like, you know, they were cursing that day. I bet their wife was so mad at them. And hate, like, of uh, we find arrows that have had their shafts repaired, you know, like ad hoc repairs, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like, oh, shit, that broke. You know, you just have to fix it because you're out hunting it's hu- uh, it's very
0: human it's yeah. it's
1: humanizing or just yeah. the feeling of losing your sh- mitten in the middle of the mountains you know you know you you're having a not the best day and yeah. um, and so one of my personal favorites is we found uh, this is at like 2000 meters above sea level uh, in a mountain pass uh, we found a toy arrow so you what? know like there kids there what's a what's a toy arrow a toy arrow. No, yeah, but what what would be a toy arrow? Oh, what? yeah, it's the size. You know, this is only like thirty centimeters long. It's just a miniature. It's it's just a scale down. Um, okay. The, the normal arrow is just made for a size that wouldn't be dangerous for an animal. Of course, you know. So it's just it's just a toy, and it's it's a blunt. You know, it has a blunt <laughs> end instead of a sharp one. So wow. they just. Uh, So you can can just imagine, you know, all the people like the like family groups, extended family, you know, going somewhere and just like losing stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, And yeah, that would be me as a kid. And my mom and dad would be furious at me for losing my toy arrow. Yeah, my toy arrow and my mitten because I was trying to pick up a fancy rock. Yeah. So what was the what was the mitten made of? it's made of wool okay
1: uh so that it's um it's made of wool, sheep's wool so it's it's woven uh, in two pieces and kind of just sewn together and then with a thumb on it it's quite quite simple
0: but yeah nothing nothing too remarkable except no, it'd been really really old it's being old and you know some of the
1: other mittens from the same era found elsewhere in Northern Europe—they've been needle-bound instead of woven. So you know, it's not shocking; it's just different.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you? Do we ever find them with fingers in, or is that a, just a purely modern?
1: Uh, so so this gloves exist, like yeah, other places in the archaeological record, we see the gloves. This isn't my expert- mm-hmm. particular expertise, but I'm pretty sure there are uh, like. I I can recall gloves being found in the first millennium, elsewhere in Europe, in in certain graves finds, for example, where because leather is preserved more often than, for example, textiles. So like leather gloves have been found, of course. Okay. So a glove is in a, in a completely modern, mm-hmm. and they've been around for two thousand years at least, and oh, wow. probably more, for all okay. I know. You know. Yeah, yeah. Or I I, I can't say for sure. No, I just no. know that they're.
0: They're, I, they're I can, old. They're old. <laughs> Yeah. Um how does it compare to like bog body like things that are preserved in bogs?
1: Yeah, so so superficially it seems the same. But the difference between wood uh, preserved in bogs and wood preserved in ice is that the um the uh, wood preserved in ice has retained its structural integrity. Wood preserved in a box, you can squish it, and it's like a sponge. You know, it looks fine, but it's not. You know, there's nothing. Okay. Like, the, the wood structure, the cell structure in the wood is gone. You know, it's just water keeping its shape. Yeah, I'm guessing moisture is just... Yeah, so if you it. find, like, 2,000-year-old wood preserved in a box, you can take your hand, and you can squeeze it, and you'll probably... Mm-hmm. It's like touching a sponge. I've excavated that kind of stuff before. Yeah. But the... Uh, the uh, stuff from the ice, you know, it's, it's been frozen. It's like keeping it in your own freezer. And um, yeah, I'm holding a piece of a bow in my hand right now. Okay. I don't know if you, can you hear the tapping sound. Uh, go... No, I think your, uh, your yeah. microphone is Somewhere else. I don't know where the microphone is, right? Or maybe it's just the filter. Yeah, the it's, not, it's not but picking it, it up. I no. believe you, though. It looks pretty sturdy. Anyway, up. you know, it's, it's it's as if you left it. Yeah. Three days ago in the sun, you know, that's that's all.
0: How old's that piece of bull that you're just tapping around casually? <laughs> it's um, uh,
1: <laughs> uh <laughs> 11, yeah, it's it's about 800 years old. <laughs> and you're, I mean, and you're just tapping it away, just get trying to give you an experience. <laughs> it's like the it's hard, you can't show anything on a podcast, you just kind of want <laughs> to, yeah. yeah. Like, no, I mean but, you can they, no, but that was a part of a, a laminated bow from the yeah. medieval period
0: people you can hold things up if you if you have anything people can watch this on YouTube as well yeah so they can see the the nice but bo- the
1: yeah so the wood is preserved as if it was made yesterday and yeah. the same with the iron is perfectly preserved because there's nothing for it to corrode with like iron found in soil you know sometimes it's just a heap of corrosion that has to be cleaned up and you can barely touch it without it turning to dust mm-hmm. uh, but here you know there's been nothing for it to corrode with there are no salts in the eye like like there's in the earth so so the uh the iron is is perfectly preserved as well yeah so it's uh it's a completely different world
0: uh, that's so, so what about when it comes to people i'm sure there must be bodies up there have you found anything like that. i think for me the first ever interaction or like knowledge of glacial archaeology was Ötzi. you know i guess yep. the the most famous uh, yeah. what would what would you call it the what would you what would you call that kind of body that's found up there is there, a, is there a an ice bit? mummy kind of yeah yeah, yeah. but um yeah so Ötzi, you know is
1: definitely the most famous mm. and you know it's it's famous no matter what kind of prehistoric context you're talking about it's just an amazing find you know there's yeah. just so much there and it's just it's so old and it's everything and um, so that that's really cool but uh, we Do you haven't, have your
0: own Etsy uh, i guess no I we, we
1: haven't we have unfortunately we have not found our own uh, deceased person maybe okay. someday we will you know but the you know there's uh, there's a lot of chance going into somebody dying on the spot and not being retrieved by.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: By other, but we see, you know, other people have lost their horses on the ice. We found a dog, you know, with his collar and leash still. So, you know, there's always, you know, chances are that it can happen, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just. uh,
0: It has to be that.
1: Yeah. They have to die, you know, at the right time like they have to die within like above the ice core and they have to die at the right time of year. And because there are of course scavengers, you know, like Wolverines in the mountains, Mm -hmm. you know, so if there's just a dead body lying around for several weeks or months, you know, they'll just get eaten up by animals. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to die and then get quickly covered by snow. (laughs) So there's a lot of uh, ifs going into Mm -hmm. actually uh, finding a, a preserved human Within the ice, but it can happen. You know, there's been one an example of this in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a similar to Etsy,
0: okay. Would they? So, I presume people would have died up there. Um, You know, it's a harsh environment. I I can't imagine for a second that it wouldn't have happened. So, do you think that they would have taken them with them? Yeah for because again, you know, it's it is a harsh environment. It's it adding to your workload having to as cruel as it sounds pull a pull a dead person with you.
1: Yeah. But yeah, they probably would have, you know, the off chance that somebody passed away, I uh I I guess they would have taken them along. You know, we know a lot about mortuary practices in, for example, the Iron Age, Viking Age. You know, they've gone through they've gone to lengths, you know, to bury people in specific places with a lot of stuff and you know they spent a lot of energy on burials in these societies so it doesn't seem like a lot of work to carry somebody three or four or five hours hours down from a mountain you know mm-hmm. on top of all the other things they chose to do to yeah. um, to honor the dead
0: so you you mentioned about a dog now yeah. i anybody that knows me i love dogs So do we know first, I guess, what kind of doggy it was? Um, What was, what would the leash? Well, you said it had like a collar and a lead on, which which I found fascinating as well. Well, I assume that's probably leather. No, actually no, It's not leather. Okay. I'm always wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, we don't know what uh, type of dog it is yet. Uh, the the bones are at a DNA analysis analysis right now, oh. but uh, you're
0: muted again. I think I dropped my keyboard and I hit the wrong button. So is this a recent found find? Uh, no, it's it's a couple of years ago. But you
1: know, some things take time, and then you have to find somebody that's willing to do the analysis and stuff. But and we know that you know the dog was um, was about half a meter tall. Uh, at the shoulders, you know, based on the bones. It was a male okay. dog. It had um, broken bones that had healed. Oh, wow. Uh, it had eaten fish uh, among his last meals because, you know, bones in the
0: stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so so is, that, is that similar as with Ertzig? Because I know one of the, the big things about that was that you could see, you know, the contents of his stomach in his last meal. Do you get that the same with... The horses and the dogs and can you get an idea of i guess their diet uh, well it's not the
1: same these for this dog it was like the actual gut kind of is gone but you know there's still just were fish bones within the ribs you know you know
2: they, okay
1: you know it was preserved that way but in the horses we have all the ex. we have tons of horse droppings on the site because you know they've been walking hundreds and hundreds of horses back and forth On this Mm -hmm. uh, on this mountain route, and they have, you know, as horses do, taken a dump wherever they were. They do, yes. And then (laughs) so on on big melt years, we're literally wading through the stuff. You know, you got a a level of of uh, horse droppings that are just, you know, there are a thousand years. There's like hundreds of years of horse droppings melting out (laughs) of the ice at once, and it smells like it oh it still smells yeah it, it it isn't like a harsh smell but it's like oh this is uh this is uh this isn't good but it's still uh, wow yeah. so then you can see of course what the horses have been eating through pollen and uh, macro and stuff within the droppings mm-hmm. so there's um of course information in that too so we get it you know we get a big like we can piece together all these kind of things so we know kind of at what time of year they were using the mountain pass and what they were transporting through it. And, uh, and like the Lembren site, we were talking about, they were transporting, they were crossing it from the early summer and onwards in the season. Mm -hmm. And they were transporting, as we said, like I mentioned, like equipment for dairy production. You don't need that in the top of the mountains. Why is that there? Why is there toys there? uh why is there so much textile there's like there's there's containers there's beeswax there's just everything that a normal household would need and they were going somewhere and you know it took a while for us to realize how much there actually was and 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 that it was more at first we just thought it was hunting equip hunters that had lost some equipment but then it was like no no this is something else Mm -hmm. This is something more. Why is there thousands of objects at this site? Okay. And, you know, okay, they were going somewhere because they weren't going here. This isn't Mm -hmm. the equipment for going here. They were just passing
0: by. So 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 when you said a mountain pass, I kind of just assumed it was a path between two villages maybe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we know that today we didn't, you know, kind of jumping back and forth in our own story, you know, we didn't know that until okay. we yeah. discovered it to be that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, as so after, you know, realizing this was, you know, a mountain pass, you know, where was it going? And then we started working our way down the other side of the mountain because there wasn't any known prehistoric village or or site dwelling site. There wasn't a known one, you know, but. So we started following down, and then, um, uh, you know, then then you notice there were like a lot of cairns and there were well-worn paths that weren't in use anymore. Uh, and uh, following this, we ended up uh, at a site called, or a, a, a getting close to, a, a modern summer farm area called Netto. And it um, wasn't anything known. Archaeological sites there, but there was like a, a local legend about that there had been something there before that was gone, and uh, and then lo and behold, our um, one of our team members actually discovered house ruins, uh, several of them wow. beneath you know all the juniper that is, uh, so this is you know a hundred meters further up into like the mountain than the the existing summer farms today. So it's, it's not an area in use anymore, but, you know, he and after some surveying, you know, we uh, found, um, I think it was 21 house ruins, you know, and so we didn't, it's, so it's not a small, no, this isn't small. And we didn't, we didn't know, you know, it couldn't be sure how old it was. Maybe it was just like from the 1600s for, all we know, at that point, mm-hmm. Uh, But they, you know, they had the vibe of could being from the Iron Age, Viking Age, like similar to other places we'd seen, but there aren't that many, you know, usually. But we decided to do a test excavation of a few of them to get uh, samples for for carbon dating. And we did a bit of excavating and and we, it felt good because we didn't find any modern stuff or anything that was typically in use, medieval or renaissance or, or later periods you know like uh, brick or clay pipes and stuff that is ubiquitous for that time yeah. period um and yeah we carbon dated several of them and they were from the viking age you know it was like this <laughs> unbelievable feeling kind of that you started to piece together first it was like an unknown mountain pass then you kind of find this unknown village mm-hmm. in the mountains there's just you're opening up a whole uh Uh, piece of history that you had no you know you could have like guessed that it was there or that they did this kind of stuff but now you suddenly have you've populated the high mountains in the iron age viking age with lots of people lots of activity Uh, so perhaps you know when you're looking at a mountain area now you think oh this is pristine nature man hasn't done much here but that now we see like they've just there have been people everywhere up here mm-hmm. they've been hunting reindeer they've been quarrying rock they've been moving goods you know there's pretty much just a major highway going mm-hmm. over the mountain because it would be easier than walking down in the forested valley mm-hmm. so um yeah that you know that's then you're getting into like the the hi- history on a bigger scale you know not just like cool finds and and uh, one off wonders of of things to learn but you suddenly you're building a history a synthesis of of the past in the mountains yeah
0: With, it's changing what people's opinions are and what people think they did and where they think that they lived to yeah it's, and op- else, it's, it's opening it all up um yeah that and, has they, to be a very...
1: and how willing and able they were to to utilize this landscape
2: to yeah
1: a very large extent it's just not hunting groups going up, getting game and then going back down again. It's like you're actively using the whole area with lots yeah. of people throughout the summer months.
0: Okay. To to I guess to clear this up in in my mind and maybe other people's listening. When we were talking mountain pass before, I was kind of thinking you had a village below the ice, just you know, regular village height you know just where it's nice and green and then you would use the mountain pass to pass through the mountains to another village that is at regular height in the green normal so it's not actually up in the snow and the ice it's just like a an easier way to get to that other village is to go through the mountains rather than going around the mountain but what you're saying is that there was a settlement actually up in. So, for example, and now Paris. we're talking about
1: like the normal village would be, you know,
0: uh,
1: in the in the in the bottom of the valley, you know, three four hundred meters above sea level. Yeah, and then they crossed over the mountain, two thousand meters above sea level, and then on the other side of the mountain, they went to, uh, down to. Though now we're talking about a a vill or a site settlement site village somewhere they spent time in the summer that is around a thousand meters eleven 1, hundred meters. So you're talking about where the tree line is. Wow. So it's it's uh, so it's not from one village to another, but it's from a uh, from a village or settlement area over the mountain and then a little bit down on the other side. To where they would have their animals grazing in the summer, mm-hmm. and there was other resources to um, there's we know there's like a quarry there for soapstone, and there we would have lots of uh, goods related to hunting activities. So it's like a it seems like a hub of trade and hunting and uh, dairy uh, farming.
0: So it was a proper little settlement settlement. It wasn't. Just, uh,
1: I don't okay. think it wasn't like we're now the the nectar at a thousand meters above the sea level. We're not, I don't think we're talking about a permanent like year round settlement site, okay? But something that would be like a seasonal site where you'd go, you know, at the end, uh, like at the end of May, beginning of June, you know, when the snow would disappear from that area mm-hmm. and then in, into through August, for example, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because yeah, well, I mean, I guess I like, was thinking maybe it was somewhere where the hunters would stay for yeah as well. for maybe like a week or whatever, yeah. and then they they do would hunt, right. and then when they got enough, they would then go back to the to the main. But it seems like it's more permanent than yes. that, at least. So
1: so it would it probably most well, a lot of it would probably function like uh, summer farms and uh, shieldings have worked in up until. Recent times they would take um their they like goats and uh, cows and sheep up to like the summer pastures because then they could graze on the on the grass in the mountains and then they would milk them and they would make dairy products in the mountain, like for example, well cheeses would- so that they can transport them out, you know so that you can and that means you don't deplete your resources in the valley. So it's like moving your animals to uh so you're using areas that aren't available the rest of the year in the summer, so you don't deplete your resources for
0: feed for animals in the uh in the autumn or spring or, or winter. Okay. Cause that was gonna be my next question was what would be the point of of making this long journey yeah. with, with all your animals to keep them? But yeah. it's I guess it's like a a farm away from yeah, in settlement where you they can would would the yeah. it's, it's um, that
1: is exactly what it is. It's kind of like your it's that's why it's called the summer farm. You have your your main settlement site, but then you can move parts of your of your livestock to somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, and and deplete the the grazing resources there for the season. And then that's why it's a lot done this with the uh, dairy production because then while the animals aren't there, you can still milk them, you can make cheeses and then you can transport the cheeses back to to the main areas or or sell it and,
0: mm-hmm. and so forth. Would they, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, would they bring the animals back each year or would they... Yeah, they'd, they'd move the animals back and forth. So they'd come back each year and yeah. then... Mm-hmm. So have you found any sort of Domesticated farm animals on the way uh maybe we think so but i not to edu- this,
1: yeah we're still working on uh, some of it you know to be um sure enough to want to publish this you know there's a there's a scale of how, okay. how sure you're about it so things. but we certainly do find a lot of uh, specialized equipment for for uh for transporting animals. For example, we mm-hmm. find them um, uh, like leaf fodder. So they brought uh, food for the animals while crossing the mountains. Okay. And uh, the equipment for move or uh, like sticks that are kind of made for herding. And uh, and, and that, those kind of like all the details you kind of need to, uh, to, to execute such a maneuver of moving a herd of animals from one place to another. Mm-hmm. another.
0: You know, I I absolutely love episodes like this because it makes me remember that people. Because I think it's easy to forget that people a thousand years ago was they were still, you know, they they were humans and they they're not just the they're not just uneducated. Because I think it's easy to think of us, us today as being these highly educated beings you know we can google anything at the touch of a button and pretty much find out most things yeah it takes a degree of research but you can get a decent understanding of most things um and so you kind of look back at people's in history as being a little bit stupid or not knowing as much so that's kind of like a, a very broad way to put it oh. so i think you know episodes like this really make me stop thinking like that and i'm like you know this is it's insane that the, that they took this journey with not just to go hunting but they were taking out a, a whole bunch of animals up there they had to take enough supplies they had to make sure that not only they were safe for the journey but they had to make sure the animals could make the journey yeah. and then transport all the things that they made back so yeah. you know this had to be a very frequent back and forth yeah. and you know it's it's high scale kind of agriculture, and it's is fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it puts it kind of in your face, you know, when you have this these types of uh, sites and experiences that it's it's just there. And they were they were just doing so much more than um, sitting in their halls, made mm-hmm. and building burial mounds. You know, there's yes. there's a lot of activity going on everywhere, and they and they were more than happy to
0: to go places all the time you know what it's just made me think of that every time every time like a a, a viking tv show or movie comes out and it's it's out there it's very barbaric and then if you look in the comments people always say well you wouldn't really want to see a film about the viking age because it's just farmers doing farming stuff and it's quite boring But then you tell me stories like this, and I'm like, no, they could do a really cool story about something like this, because you know that it's it's fascinating, it's an interesting, and you could make it exciting. But the fact that, because again, it's probably my own prejudice prejudices to a a degree of you you think of farmers from the Viking age, you think of living on a little farmstead and your farm is kind of outside your house. But, and you, you know, and you do your, your farming and you live off the land for you and your family. But this is, you know, this is like, a, again, it's, it's agriculture on a different scale of taking all these animals off site because it's not going to deplete your resources. It's you're thinking further ahead than the now. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I love it. I'm I, I'm so grateful that you're doing the work.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we're having a good time doing it. So, but you know, this all this is going on in a society that is very much into the rest of the what's going on in the Viking Age. You know, because the burials in these valleys, you know, people were put into burial mounds, and you have swords in the burials. You know, they they buried people in the mountains with swords. Uh, we found a sword up in the, or a local reindeer herder found, hunter found a Viking sword next to one of our sites a couple of years ago, just dropped in the mountains. And, uh, you know, so it's, you know, we all, of, and from the sagas, some of the sagas, like these mountain valleys, right, that I've been talking about that I haven't said any really names on yet, but there is some of them are mentioned in the sagas, you know, as they, like, um. Yeah, Saint Olaf came and killed everybody there and burned them, you know, because they didn't want to convert to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they there was fighting and killing here too, but you know that was just part of part of life. But most of life was
0: spent farming, yeah,
1: hunting, buildings. They probably chopped a lot of wood. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, or, 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 or or just
1: yeah. yeah yeah just like most days were normal days
0: yeah for sure but, but this really puts it into a different for me anyway a different perspective of farming you know mm-hmm. there's there's farming and then there's a different because this
1: this is the type of farming in in norway for example this part of norway in the viking ages it's not just like telling the earth day in day out you know there's you will have several small fields spread throughout the landscape you'll have grazing animals at different places and there'll be this whole system you know where you're doing a lot of different things mm-hmm. at once you know so um it was probably
0: backbreaking work but it was uh varied oh, sure it, it was probably very yeah. varied i'm really sure it was okay we're we're over an hour and i think you know i i feel like we could talk about this and i feel like you've probably got a a lot more you could tell us about this um so i would i would love if we could book you to come back on in a couple of months i don't know when it starts getting busy for you again
1: well yeah we'll we'll probably figure something out and then we can talk about something more specific
0: yeah absolutely but i you know when we when we spoke before i said you know it would be nice to just have a a quick general chat about what yeah. glacial archaeology was, and then once we started in the first ten minutes, I'm like, "No, this is just going to be pretty much the episode because yeah. this is so fascinating." Um, and, and yeah, you know, I'm sure that everybody listening will will find it fascinating as well. But it would be nice to then now
1: yeah. we've
0: got now we've got that sort and we can start the next episode with some more specific things. We can just say to people, go back and go back and listen to the other one. If you want a, an overview, now we're going to get into yeah. some nitty gritty, as, yeah, as Brits say.
1: Well, there's a lot to say about, for example, if you want to talk about just the Viking Age
0: finds, you know, that, that'd be probably two hours in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I probably would happily speak for, for the people listening that they would love to explore outside the Viking Age as well, because this stuff, it really is just so interesting but yeah let's let's do one on viking age finds and then we can see where we go from there but you know this was a lot of fun and we're going to do a a short q a after this uh where the patrons get to ask you some questions and i've already seen some popping up in the chat i've had some sent to me so that's going to be be a lot of fun if you do want to Hear more from Julian. Just if you support us on Patreon at any level, you get access to a bonus episode every week. It's a Q&A with the guests. We sit down after the main show and patrons can submit questions before the show or during in the live chat. And then we ask Julian them after or whatever guests we've gone on at the time, we ask them after. And then you get that episode released on Patreon after the fact as well. So you can listen back to it. And you also get the bonus episodes with Jonas Lorenson on there as well. So it's literally just Patreon forward slash Naughty Mythology podcast. And it starts from three pound a month. It's the price of buying me a cup of coffee and it really does help us keep the lights on and keep improving. Um, yeah. Julian, can you, do you want to give a, a shout out to, I don't know if you want to plug your, yourself directly, but the, you know, the secrets of the yeah. ice stuff.
1: So for anybody that wants to learn more, uh, I'd highly recommend you to follow us on Secrets of the Ice. You know, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we even have a YouTube channel where we upload all the videos we make for the other socials. Mm -hmm. And you can find us at secretsoftheice.com. And uh, I also just want to thank my colleagues that, uh, you know, I'm from the Museum of Cultural History at the University of Oslo. And our partners that do a lot of the heavy lifting on this project is the archaeologists at the county council of Inland Cal- County in Norway.
0: Oh nice. Yeah, wonderful. Um yeah, this like I said, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I, f- I and I do suggest you you follow the Instagram, you have some beautiful pictures on there. You you take some I, I presume it's not you taking the photos, but whoever is taking the photos takes some absolutely beautiful pictures.
1: Well, there are a lot of people taking photos. Uh, I think if the ones that are out of focus, they're probably mine. Okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> I didn't know whether you took a photographer with you. Um, oh, we,
1: sometimes we bring a professional photographer mm-hmm. uh, specifically just to get nice shots. Yeah, and uh, some uh, sometimes or most times we we don't, you know, it's just us with our, but we take a lot of pictures, you know, as archaeologists. That's <laughs> you, you know, you take hundreds of pictures every day. Yeah, and then of course we have good photographers here at the museum, you know, for studio pictures as well. So there's a lot yeah. of different people taking a lot of nice pictures.
0: Yeah, no, it is it is beautiful, and I guys, I speak on behalf of everybody. We appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Um, if you do want to, if you want to follow me on anything, it's just Daniel and Scott Fire and one on Instagram or the podcast. It's just at Nordic Mythology, Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, hit the subscribe button, all those things. Oh, we did have to, um, here's a little thing. We had to get rid of our Facebook page the the other day. Because Facebook decided that we weren't, they couldn't identify us as being, uh, but, well, basically they said they couldn't identify us as being like real people, so we had to get rid of our Facebook page and start a new one, um, because you know, Facebook's gonna be Facebook, I guess they, you see so much stuff slide by them and so many bots being made, and then I, I I sent them my my driving license front and back image, just as they yeah. asked. And apparently they couldn't identify me <laughs> as being being real. And it all stemmed down to, because we had uh, login ins from two different IP addresses, yeah. one from me in the UK and one from Alyssa in in Oslo. Um, And they saw the two different IP addresses and just went, oh, well, these must be fake. And then no matter what you do yeah. to try and prove that you're not, they're just like, nope fake so i just gave up in the end and started a new one so we do have a new facebook page which is just naughty mythology podcast dash nmp because it had to be a little bit different to the first one um so if you can please just go and like that please leave a review because it helps facebook know that we're real people apparently if we have reviews so (laughs) yeah if, if you can do that i would appreciate it uh, Julian, let's let's get to some questions from yeah. from the patrons. Wonderful.